I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of All Stats Aren't We, available only to our patrons. This week I spent some time talking to David Sumter about his new book, The Ten Equations That Rule the World, and how you can use them too. David is a professor of applied mathematics at the University of Uppsala in Sweden, but he's also the author of Soccermatics and has worked with some of the biggest football clubs in the world, including Hammarby, Barcelona and England. Before we get to that though, we just want to say thank you to those new subscribers we've picked up in the last week or so. Your support provides us with the data that we need to create the content we create, and we're really thankful for that. We've been putting out a lot of content for you this week. For example, our video analysis piece looking back over the Wolves game has just gone up. If there's any other content you'd like to see, do get in touch and let us know. Now, over to my conversation with David. So David, hi, how are you doing? Good, very good. Thanks for for talking to me. Mm, it's been a, a real pleasure to, to read your book, and uh, I've read your other books as well, so um, it, it's uh, nice to get the, the final instalment of this. You're in Sweden at the moment, presumably. Yeah, so I've, I've actually I've lived here for 14 years. I get lots of peace and quiet here in Sweden to write books and so on. Um, but uh, we're having a very different lockdown experience, I think, than, than you guys are. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a different life. We can still meet people and so on. Um, but yeah, life is good. So I think the best place to start is maybe by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, this is um, a book about maths, but you do a lot of stuff that, that sort of crossovers into football, and you've done stuff in the science world that you cover a lot of that in the book as well. So maybe just give us a really brief pricey of your of your career so far. Yeah, so I I'm British originally. I grew up in Scotland, and um, but I, I don't have a Scottish accent because I'm originally born in London. And I've moved around a lot. I lived in Manchester where I did my PhD and then I worked in Oxford as a researcher for some time until I moved to Sweden, well, 13, 14 years ago. And so I am a professor of applied mathematics, but I've always been a really applied mathematician. So in the sense that I'm interested in how the world works. And most of my started, most of my research to start with, it was about honeybees. It was about fish schools, locust swarms. And I cover a lot of that in Socomatics as well, and it also comes up in the new book. But then I've also looked at our social lives, so how we interact online and how we interact in society. 
And then probably what I'm most well known for in, in your sphere is the work I've done on football. And that really came about from the first book, Socomatics, which was originally thought to be a book about collective animal behavior, how animals move together. But I kind of got carried away with the football idea and just, just went with that because it, it really illustrates everything. And so, yeah, I, what I do, and I, that's what I try to get in this book, I think it's really trying to get at um, how I think about things, I suppose, as an applied mm-hmm. mathematician um, and how that differs from, I think, how other people think about things and what, what we can learn from, from that way that applied mathematicians, ma- mathematicians think. I just wanted to start with a quote. Um, this is a quote from actually from the acknowledgements at the end of the book, uh, which I guess a lot of people might not have even read. But the, the opening of the um, of the acknowledgement says this book has started properly for me with a challenge from Helen Conford. She told me to stop writing for other people and write what I really wanted to say. I told her that I'm not a very interesting person and she told me she would be the judge of that. So I did what she said. I'm interested in this in this sort of notion of, of writing what you wanted to say. Uh, and I wonder if you could maybe expand on that a little bit more. I'm most interested in this. I'm not very interesting person because I consider myself. <laughs> I don't know because that, that was the thing that meant the most for me in this. This when we had that discussion because when I talk, you know, I have friends here in Uppsala and people who have nothing to do with football or online things, and nobody tends to think that anything I say is particularly interesting. <laughs> and so I find it funny that I get to write books about what I think, because on a personal level, the, my friends aren't particularly interested in what I have to say. So, so sorry, now, the, um, now I don't sound very interesting either. <laughs> but that exact challenge that I was allowed to write exactly what I thought, I don't think I felt that I was allowed to do that in the other books I think that there you have a duty as an author to write things which people are going to be interested in and to catch their interest and get them going and so that's what that I would choose examples which I thought would catch the reader's interest and she really said um, I just told her a few things one one thing I'd done and I, I take this up in the book one thing I did was I wrote to a professor who'd written an article for the uh, magazine Quillette and he'd written this just some really stupid stuff about um, it's all this kind of race war type of things where he was talking about differences between white people and black people. And he was saying, oh, well, maybe it's genetic or whatever. And anybody who knows any science knows this this isn't genetic. And so I wrote to him and explained why he was wrong. And I also explained a lot of things to do with structural racism to him. And then we got into this debate and that's the sort of thing I find interesting and most people I talk to don't find particularly interesting in everyday life and that was something that I told Helen about and she said well that is really interesting you know you can write about some things like that and that wasn't something that I'd, I'd thought of putting in the book and then I ended up writing a lot of stuff about Jordan Peterson and his arguments and again that's not something I normally talk to about people but I read Jordan Peterson's book and I thought this this book is is really brilliantly written, actually. It's a wonderful book in the sense that it really says what he thinks, actually. He just writes down what he thinks. And I think that's very important. But at the same time, this guy is on YouTube saying some quite ridiculous things about gender differences and things which just aren't scientifically true. And he does it in this way. He is He does appear like an interesting person. He does it in this way where he... He sits looking very controlled and precise 
and makes his arguments in a way that sounds convincing, even though what he's saying contradicts the underlying science. So now I'm I'm getting getting off maybe off off subject here, but um, <laughs> that became a thing that I could then just write, and I actually ended up writing. Helen said that, but in the end, they ended up. Um, cutting about two thirds of what I wrote about Jordan Peterson, so, so it wasn't quite true that I got to write everything I wanted. But I could actually take any of these issues which I thought was important and do a mathematical analysis of them, and and that's that comes out throughout the book, I think. Yeah, because I think what's so interesting for me about the book is that that level of what you're calling interest there is a strand that runs through the book as well. I think uh, I've talked about it in in the running order in terms of um, first and second order topics that you sort of cover in the book so on the one hand the book is about these 10 equations that you see as being fundamental to modern life uh, that influences more than we we realize probably and there's also a second order conversation that's going on as well which is about the what I've called the moral dimension of what's going on so thinking about what the impact of, of, of the of the mathematical community or the world of maths can have on people and the the increasing power that it, it is being wielded by people who have understanding of maths we can un- unpick that second order stuff later on because I-, I think I find that second order stuff as fascinating, if not more fascinating and as, as the maths. And I found the maths stuff really good as well. But let's start with the, the first order stuff then. So there's, there's 10 e- equations that, that structure the book. Just tell us a little bit about how you went around the idea of, of writing a book about these 10 equations that are so influential in, in modern life. So it really started with the first story in the book. Um, and the story is about Marius and Jan who are two professional gamblers, young guys who just wanted to get started out in professional gambling. And what they did is that they came and visited me in Uppsala and asked me about how the models I'd previously proposed, I'd, I'd worked a bit about this for Socomatics. They asked about how it worked. They were very challenging in their approach to me. They really wanted to learn. And they did that with lots of other professional gamblers. They watched, watched videos, they read websites, they learned about the maths themselves. And we made a model for the World Cup, which made a bit of money, but they went on and now they've made lots of money. I caught up with them the other week and they they made 900,000 euros in 2019 doing this professional gambling. And that's where the the book starts. It's this idea that um, if you have that knowledge and you have those techniques, it was the first equation, the betting equation, which is logistic regression. If you have that knowledge, you can start to make a lot of money. And it's quite basic, it maybe sounds advanced, but it's basic mathematical ideas that are used by, for example, Matthew Benham. Um, They're used by, I I go into this guy called Bill Bentner, who used it in the Hong Kong uh, racing circuit. And he made, apparently made a billion dollars or him and his associates made a billion dollars on racing using these techniques. And so that was the first equation. And then it really just expanded from then. I, I wrote down the first equation and that's when I first contacted the editor and got the book set up. And then I started to think, well, what are the other equations? And it was nice to think that they're not all just about making money. Um, So the second equation is Bayes' rule, which is about good judgment. And it's about why it ends up being about why you should always be a nice person. Maybe this is the second order thing you're you're talking about. Then there's the confidence interval, um, which we all use to, or which we can use to decide how confident we should be about certain, certain statements. Then I have the influence, I have the skill equation. That's again going back to football. How do we measure skill in football? Then um, there's the influencer equation, social media. 
um, how Google decide who the important things are, how Inst Instagram decide. Then there's the market equation. That's the fi back to the world of finance. There is the reward equation. Oh, no, 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 there's the advertising equation. That's how Facebook target us and um, decide how, what adverts to show us. Reward equation. Um, that's how we, again, with social media, how we interact with that. Learning equation how YouTube learned our preferences and, and influence us. And then we go to the moral, the moral ideas at the end with the if-then universal equation. Was there any debate about the, the 10 equations? Because it seems to me, just reading the book, that you, you almost picked the, the nine equations that, that are used in artificial intelligence. So that those all sort of built up to one another into this sort of big picture where you're talking about artificial intelligence using these basic equations to, to good effect. And then obviously the, the universal equation at the end is, is more in the moral dimension um, that we were talking about as well. Was there any question of other, other equations making the cut? It's really interesting that you you followed it followed that way because that was that was actually quite good luck in a way. I didn't know it would be like that. I got to equation I got to chapter nine and I was writing about the learning yeah. equation. I thought, wait a minute, I can actually describe all of artificial intelligence using this equation and the ones I've done up to, to now. There was actually that wasn't going to be in there to start with. It was actually going to be an equation, it was going to be an elliptic equation which which is used in um, by Bitcoin, for example. So that was what was originally in that place, and the learning equation got took over. And I think that's I think the Bitcoin thing and the elliptic equation wasn't quite you couldn't kind of get it into your own life. Um, so solving solving the elliptic equation doesn't I couldn't really think of any examples where it was relevant to anybody's anybody's life. So it kind of got shoved into equation ten, and then it got completely forgotten in the end. So um, yeah, there was that. That was the only other one that w was in the original book proposal that didn't didn't make the final cut. I don't think. I mean, I don't know. If, I think it probably is clear if you read the book, but it's not that I really think that these are the ten equations. I'm not like I'm very much against all of this sort of Stephen Hawking idea of of ultimate equations or something like that. The final answer embodied in some some sort of numerical formula. I just don't believe in that. And so I can't really claim that my 10 equations are the only ones for all time. There's certainly other interesting equations out there. Um, but the idea was that if you, yeah, these are certainly going to help you a lot. Um, and they are the ones that are more controlling our current lives. Maybe in 50 years, there'll be another 10 equations that are controlling our lives. I wanted to touch on that because I think what you do so well is that you're just sort of open about about the reality of, of how maths is functioning uh, within society. And um, you, you, you've mentioned in the book, and the book is all about education, really. It's about educating us into knowing about these, about these um, mathematical realities that, that structure our lives and we don't really ever notice it. So I was okay at maths. I did a maths A-level, but I was very shonky at statistics. And yet I run a, a stats-based football account at the moment yet yeah, I didn't really know anything about any of these equations I, ha I had weirdly come across uh, Bayesian theory in of all places during my undergrad degree in, in theology where I came across the work of uh, an, an interesting chap called Richard Swinburne who uses Bayes theorem to to argue that the that the resurrection was more likely than not whether or not you would want to go down that route I don't know I think that's an interesting one because that was a, originally an argument put forward by David Hume I think and um, 
Bayes' theorem was actually wrongly applied. So uh, Swinburne's got it wrong. He's wrongly using Bayes' theorem. Anyway, maybe we don't want to get into that academic, <laughs> academic debate. Yeah, and I'm sure the, uh, the listeners won't be that interested in the, uh, the ins and outs and the vagaries of academic theology in the UK. But yeah, I was saying to someone, someone like myself who, who it's, it's likes to think that they're fairly uh, mathematically uh, aware, I didn't really know much about these equations at all. And I wondered whether or not you thought we've been let down by um, maths um, education here in the UK um, in the sense that it's one thing to teach people maths but on the other hand what you're doing here is you're saying look this is this is applied mathematics as you said we should almost be taught about the culture of maths or about the the ideas that, that shape our lives and I wonder if you had any thoughts on on how we could maybe improve the education of maths so that we're learning about these things in a way that is beneficial to us. I think it's really difficult there's so many things baked into what you've just said I mean the, the difficulty is this, that if we don't learn the formal part of mathematics, then we're left with not very much at all. Then we're left with my random ramblings about how it's used in society. So we somehow still have to have that formal mathematics. I wouldn't suggest that we took it away and instead replaced it with my ideas about how these ideas can be applied without actually learning what the, the, basic, the basics are. So that's always a danger with that type of thinking. But on the same hand, I do feel that our popular conception of mathematics should revolve more around this fact. And I really emphasize that there's this massive gap in society with people like Marius and Jan, who I mentioned, that if they just pick up some basic math skills, and neither of them were trained mathematicians, one is an economist and one was a, um, I mean, they have a strong maths background, but they've picked up those basic maths ideas and then they're able to transform their lives effectively. And that happens to a lot of people who pick up both the math skills and then they understand how they, they can apply them. So I do think, I, I think it's really dangerous if we create a society where there's the 0.1%. You know, you're always hearing about this 1% of people who run the world. And I and maybe it's a bit dangerous for me to start talking about this, but I use this kind of conspiracy theory idea. But there is this small percentage of people who run the world and a lot of them have a very strong mathematical training or they're using the or using these people with a mathematical training because often we're not so interested in making money so they can just use us to make lots of money for themselves and that's a that's a real problem and i if we can somehow combine both the formal education of mathematics with an understanding about how this is really going to transform your life not when you say, oh, you, you know, I mean, I don't, when I go to the bank and somebody offers me a mortgage or something and tells me some interest rate, I do not know what they're talking about. And I, I don't find it important like everybody else. And so you're always told at school, oh, you, you'll need this when you go to the bank and they offer you a mortgage. No, you won't. Because when you go to the bank, there's like, they've already set it all up and you go to the other bank and they give you the same offer. There's nothing you need to know about interest rates or any of that mathematics. But you do need to know about the types of practical mathematics where you can use it in your life to decide to make good judgment and so on um mm -hmm. yeah so i i think i think those it's it's really a question of what um what you do with the mathematics afterwards that doesn't doesn't come across i don't know where you should learn it if you should learn it in school more often or we should just emphasize it more in society but we do need to know it 
Mm, yeah, it's the what's the oft repeated refrain by kids at school is when am I ever going to use this in life? And I think that's the really striking thing about your book is that you're pointing out actually here's a very concrete example of how maths is impacting on your life. You, you only have to read the, the the stuff about Google, the stuff about how. Uh, ads are targeted about the way that you you get hooked into social media by by all all through the use of like as you say simple equations so the the practicalities of which are then applied and uh, on a whole scale um, setting so that we are essentially being controlled by uh, the people who have these who have the ability to understand these equations yeah exactly thanks for bringing it back to something concrete i know that when i do interviews i'm always meant to i always get told by my publishers that you have to go back to concrete things all the time and and that's exactly it that you're manipulated by on social media by mathematical algorithms all the time and also the fact that you can use mathematics to make better decisions in your life that's what I bring out and one one example I I, I have this example of Amy um, who's going in a new class and she hears a, another girl Rachel say something nasty about her behind her back and I work out the probability Amy's Amy wants to work out the probability that Rachel is a bitch now, this isn't something you have in school mathematics. You don't sit there and work out the probability that Rachel is a bitch. But it's a practical problem that we all come across. I mean, for me, it might be, is my boss an asshole? And you want to work this out based on the things that he's done to me. And these are important things which actually have mathematical answers. You might be subjective about how many assholes and how many bitches there are in the world, but you can actually rationally work out if a bad comment, if a nasty comment that somebody says implies something about them. And often it turns out that we all make mistakes. And so these are the false positives in Bayes' equation when somebody makes a mistake. And you have to be forgiving of those mistakes because they happen. And that, I think, is a very practical problem that anybody could benefit from so that they make better better decisions. The book is really engagingly written, as you've as you mentioned there. Like you, you are doing applied mathematics, and and applied mathematics should be engaging and should be interesting. I flew through the book in bits and pieces through the course of the week and found it very very easy to read. And I just wondered how how difficult you found it to write so engagingly about maths. So is is it something that you you can do easily, or does does it require a lot of a lot of effort? No, th- this was very easy to write. There's some bits which. When I have to do calculations and research to work out and get things right, that can take time. But the actual writing, um, I find very easy. So I've been working this past year. So I finished writing the book actually over a year ago. That's the nature of these things. It was meant to come out in May, but then there was the whole COVID thing. But I wrote a lot of this, um, the actual sort of force of the book, I, I wrote when I was sitting on the train going to Stockholm, um, where I'm working for Hammerby, for example, I have 45 minutes on the way there, and then I could like just enjoy write the enjoyable stuff, um, which is ends up being the majority of the words. The majority of the hard work is actually checking the facts, going through all the scientific papers to make sure that I've got everything straight, um, and do it. I often do some. I do data collection myself for all my books. I do data collection. I process these problems and try and answer them. Um, uh, that takes that takes more time, but that's what I enjoy doing. I'm an applied mathematician, so I love doing that bit too. Obviously, each equation has to be explained. How did you find just putting those equations into language that an everyday person can understand? How how was that as a process? Yeah, no, that that doesn't take so long for me to do. I think um, so. I have yeah. I, I think there's three components to 
what I'm writing. There's this kind of why this is important bit that that can, I can write very quickly. The process of explaining an equation, I think it's a process. It's like I use how I understood the equation. I think one thing that people don't realize about mathematicians like me, or especially like me, I'm not very good at maths. And that's how I learn and I can explain it. So I'm not one of these. I was good in school, but I think I got um, and I, th- I got a B in maths at um, higher. And then I did some six year studies. Um, so I'm, I wasn't like some sort of maths genius or something like that. So I have difficulty understanding the equations, but I really just keep working and trying to understand them more and more. So that's that's what took the time. It actually took me 20 years to understand these equations. And then once, because it was so hard for me, it makes it easier for me to explain. I think it's more difficult for those mathematicians who just like, yeah, now I understand that equation. <laughs> they, they get it very quickly. That is hard for them to explain to others how they did it. But I had to work very hard to understand equations. I still make lots of really silly mathematical errors. I'm not, you know, I'm not very good at those types of calculation things. You should see me teaching. One of the problems is like when you're teaching, <laughs> all my students are much better at me at the calculations. So I'm standing there trying to work something out and like getting it wrong and they're pointing out where, where I should do things <laughs> right. So it's... It's, um... it's always easier to be a backseat mathematician. Though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I want to talk obviously a little bit about the football given that, that we cover uh, football exclusively on this channel. Um, the book obviously touches on football quite regularly. I guess my question is, you know, how important are these 10 equations for the state of modern football? And and by that, I mean, we know that data analysis is being done by football clubs right now. You touched on um, sort of possession value type models um, in, in the book itself. Are, are any of these other 10 equations important for the way that, that football is being analysed right now? Well, the possession value one, which I call the skill equation, is the central one. And that was, that's been very interesting in setting up the Friends of Tracking video things we did. That was, that I think was essentially a glimpse inside of 10. Um, So I mentioned Javier Fernandez from Barcelona, who I've I've worked with. And um, when we, when he suggested setting up Friends of Tracking, so, which is a website and a YouTube, well, it's just a YouTube channel. And now it's been, been a course explaining how maths is used inside football clubs. That was really a glimpse inside the secret organization 10, which which I claim in the book rules the world. And there they use, I suppose they use logistic regression is a big one. So that's the first the first equation that I met. The betting equation, you use it to decide win or lose, but it's actually what underlies expected goals. So the expected goals model is a logistic regression. Then I things like confidence intervals come up a lot, like um I always find it interesting at the start of the season because there's so much discussion about um, the form of different teams. And basically, you know nothing until at least week six or seven of the season or you've got is random fluctuations. There's no I think it must be difficult as a football journalist. I always feel sorry for you if you've got to find something to write about. But to me, it's just a pointless time in football. Those first first six games where just a lot of random stuff is happening and you you start to see the, the pattern after a bit. So that comes up. So I think, yeah, basically the first four equations in the book all have some football-related application. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, let's move on to the moral dimension now, but um, perhaps weirdly stick with football. So something that came across my uh, radar this week has been people on football Twitter talking about models and, and their function, particularly in the in the context of um, looking at training systems and how you might develop a model of, uh, the, I think the model that was used was a really basic sort of uh, the possession and out of possession and then the, the states of transition between those two things. And I guess if I were to paraphrase the question with something like, do models reflect reality or does does reality reflect models? And this is something that I actually found quite interesting in, in your book as well, because again, as as someone who myself trained as as a theologian, but um, moving more into philosophy, um, one of the one of the big frustrations that I've uh, come across a lot, especially when I was doing graduate work, where you're coming across people who are just up and down scientists who just sort of will will not think about anything outside of the numbers and and will sort of get to this point you mentioned before Stephen Hawking's sort of um, magic model that that explains away everything Um, and I think that you know there's plenty of interesting things that you talk about in the book you talk about logical positivism as well um, which is again a a sort of philosophical school that I see as 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 sort of making that one-on-one mapping really between language or or the maths of that we we use to, to sort of model the world and the world itself and the question is, how, how close uh, is the world to, the, to those models? I've actually got a long quote here that I'm, I'm, I'm eventually going to get around to a question here, don't worry. But uh, this is a long quote from, I think, the final chapter of the book. You cite Poincaré's question, um, and this is what the question is. If all the assertions which mathematics puts forward can be derived from one another by formal logic, mathematics cannot amount to anything more than an immense tautology. And a tautology in that sense is when, when something equals itself. Logical inference can teach us nothing essentially new, but can we really allow that these theorems, which fill so many books, serve no other purpose than to say in a roundabout fashion that A equals A? Uh, And then a little bit later in that chapter, you you answer Poincaré's question. You say the correct answer to Poincaré's question turns out to be much more straightforward than he imagined. The answer is yes. All the great theorems of mathematics and the sorting and organising algorithms of computer science say nothing more than A does equal A. They're all just one immense tautology, very useful and unexpected tautologies, but tautologies nonetheless. Poincaré was literally correct and rhetorically wrong. And I think what you're, what you're arguing there is actually in many respects, you know, models are simply that, you know, they are, they are a linguistic system which makes sense. They have to make logical sense. But at the end of the day, they are always going to be a model and there is always going to be a gap between your model and the world out there. This book to me feels about you coming to terms with maths and the real world and, and it feels as though you have that sort of little tension there where you where you're wanting to say yes math is useful but math isn't everything is that is that fair to say that's that's definitely fair to say and that's something which I've spent a lot of time talking about I think 
this happened to me both when I was working in biology and when I started working in football is you start the first thing you hear is that this is nonsense when you start wanting to use maths nobody wants to use it then the second thing you hear is this is brilliant can you tell me you know can you <laughs> can you make a model of this and then they just totally believe any model you tell them and so that happened yeah as I said it happened a lot of the models that we had of of animals moving around that people started to see fish in those ways in terms of the models and now it's happened with for example the expected goals model in football where it becomes really important for people inside clubs to know what their expected goals are because it's it's essential and expected goals is just a model and then then you hear certain certain analysts are going on about how we're trying to make the expected goals model better and better and better and better and that's just a waste of time because it's good enough for the purpose we have. What we want to have for it is two things. We want to have a way of measuring how good chances we created. And we also want to have a way of discussing with players better shot locations and better chances of scoring. And it already does that. Making it more accurate is not going to improve in any way at all. Um, the expected goals... More, I mean... In the end, if you just want to know the chance of scoring a goal, if it goes in the back of the net, it's one. And so a perfect expected goals model would just say, well, when they scored, it was one. And when they didn't score, it was zero. And there was all these millions of factors that you put in. And it doesn't give you any more information. So that tends to be a common problem, that people start to confuse the model and the reality. You have to always go back and remind them that it's just a model, it's just a model. And then there's going to be other models. There's models to do with, and I looked at this a lot in my Friends of Tracking course. There's a Poisson model of goals being random in football. There's network models. There's um, pitch control models of space. And all of these are separate. There tends to be an idea for mathematicians. And if you talk to people like Google or something like that, what they want to do is they want to put everything into one model to totally understand football in the same way that they understand understand chess. And that's not going to work because we just aren't at that type of stage. Or a much better approach is to say, well, it's this model that we work with now, or it's this model that we work with now, and we work within that context all of the time. And that's what the... So, yeah, I mean, imagine if you did have a complete model of football where you knew what was going to happen in the second, in the next second. You would just have an A equals A model of football. You wouldn't really have any more understanding of the game you just have this sort of perfect simulation. You wouldn't even need the game, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, so yeah, it, it's not, it's not really. That's not really going to be useful. And this, this does sound abstract, but it's something which is happens on a practical basis all of the time. That people who are working with data and models in football often fail to communicate this uncertainty. Really, they're just bringing one way of seeing the game. And so this is when we work at Hammerby, um, there's coaches there who have models, none of them are formal models, but they're much better typically for many aspects than any of the models that I can bring. I just have one or two small models that I can kind of like fine tune what they do rather than completely inform what they do. So it's not about going into a club, showing them an expected goals model and saying, now we've got the solution or any other model, is about having that sort of discussion and that backwards and forwards between the data and the model. Um, I, I like one example we have at Hammerby um, was to do with, because your, your example you showed on Twitter and I had a look at it because it was like to do with the four transitions, the attack, um, transition to defence, 
defense, transition to attack. And actually, one of the examples where we could do something successful with data at Hammerby was it was when we were attacking, where should the players who are nowhere involved with the attack stand to have the best chance of getting the ball back if we lose the ball when we're attacking? So this is what we call a defense in attack, which doesn't fit into that model of the four schemes because it's not about attack, it's not about defence, it's about defence in attack. And if you're stuck in those four transitions scheme, then you don't start to think about this other problem. And by coming in, when we came in with the pitch control model, which is who gets the ball first, we could actually start to think about this new problem that wasn't encompassed in the typical trainer cycle model. And I think that's the type of way that mathematics can contribute, is interactions between the trainer's model and the, the applied mathematician's model. Yeah, this is this is a great um, step to the next question that I had actually because um, I wanted to talk about the fact that that actually the, there is a symbiosis between realities and models, right? Because models can change the way we look at reality as well. I've just written a piece on looking at possession as a as a statistic, um, and as you'll know, possession was originally um, measured by using a sort of chess clock timer and and switching backwards and forth. But that's a, a really um, time heavy way of measuring um, doing the data gathering and so at some point in history opted to realize that there was a, a fairly nice ratio between passing and possession and so what most possession models now are based on how many passes you made um, and I wrote in this piece just sort of looking at actually how that's made us think about possession in a very specific way the model has actually or the, the, at least the model of data gathering there has made us think about um possession in, in a way that may be unhelpful and it may actually be had had opta not gone to measuring um these these sorts of things using passes rather than than temporal um periods then we might be thinking about possession very very differently here and um again i think this sort of comes through in the book because um you're talking about the inherence of maths and reality, um, especially in I think the latter chapters, where you're starting to say, yes, you know, we can we can look at what Facebook or Google or Snapchat are doing um, with their with their algorithms, but actually there's a there's a real sense in which that math is shaping the world as as we see it like what is it that we like do we like the things that we like or are we, are we now liking the things that we're told we need to like and that that's that's what the youtube al algorithm that the funnel that you talked about is is such an interesting concept right because um it's it's sort of guessing what we should like and as a result of that we are starting to like the things it guesses and you sort of have that um that that sort of uh, recursion there um could, could, what do you what, what have you got to say about that? There's, there's plenty of ideas. I've got there. two things. You've gone you've gone quickly <laughs> from possession to YouTube funnels. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm I was thinking about the possession thing first. I mean, the, mm. I, I, and also I want to read your article, which I haven't I have to admit <laughs> I haven't read because the possession one thing I, I did a a YouTube thing together with um, Vosse. I can't remember her second name now, but, she, but she's the IAX. She's the IAX um, data scientist. And she did a fascinating thing because the, the key thing in measuring performance based on possession is actually passing rate. So you need to know both the clock and you need to know the number of passes. Mm -hmm. And the more passes you do within those clock things, the better the team is. And she found with Ajax, when they were playing in the Champions League, they were passing more rapidly than they were playing in the... Um, Advizi or Revi, what do you call it? The uh, first division yeah, of the Advizi. Yeah, Advizi. Um, they were 
they were passing slower. They had a f- slower passing tempo there. And then she looked at the under-19s team and the under-17s team. And she was actually doing things like she was taking the under-17s team videos and she was speeding them up to the rate that the Ajax first team were playing in the Champions League so they could see uh, how they sh- what rate they should be passing at if they wanted to be up at the up at the level of the A team. And that's a very simple. So she started there with the correct model or what we think is the correct model of of possession, that it's passing rate that's important. But then she's taken it and made it extremely concrete by showing side by side the under 17 team passing to each other and then showing them the passing rate they have to get up to if they're really going to they're going to perform. And that's what, yeah, going back to how a modeler should see things, I think that's a good example of funnel vision. You've taken the the most important aspect of possession and you've illustrated it in a very short clip of, of video. Um, now, going to your, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's another example. I mean, going to your YouTube thing, I, I think for YouTube and for lots of social media companies, that's the mission that they have, is taking this vast quantity of information and condensing it down in a way that they can present it to us. And... Of course, when they do that, there's going to be some kind of um, loss of information there as well. That you're going to get stuck in in these sort of more limited views of the world because of the way the algorithm is shaped. Yeah, and I, I guess I, I do want to move on because I'm aware of the time. But I guess I was, I was I was interested in when you pick a model to be the model. The problem then becomes that you try and fashion reality to be that model, and and if you choose the wrong model, in, in scare quotes, um, then you and that's what you were talking about with those with those four periods of 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 um, of, of a football game. You know, defense, the transition to attack, attack, transition to defense. If you think of the game in that way, does it eventually become unhelpful? If we pick a, a particular model of doing things, does it actually change? Um, it, and you talk about this, I think, with ants, right? In terms of um, them having, you talk about the tipping point. Um, at which you know, if you if you make a decision to go one way, how do you ever reverse that decision to go the other way? And I wondered if there's any examples of that, maybe in how you could do that in football. Is there any is there any way that football can avoid just sort of getting drawn into one way of doing things without without necessarily falling into a, a into a pattern? Well, I think you see this more and more with tactical changes. Um, where, yeah, I think that was. What that's one thing that I got asked a lot about because in Socomatics I I think I wrote a lot about Barcelona and how well they played and and all of this 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 stuff and then clearly they're not playing very well <laughs> right now um, but the thing is that the football evolves so you can never have any one tactic is always going to be beatable by some other tactic and then that tactic is then going to be beatable by another tactic. And I think that's what makes it really interesting. And I think that's what we see with lots of the different um, tactical progressions now. I mean, I don't have to say this to a Leeds United fan. <laughs> it really, I mean, seeing different styles of football is is what it's all about. And I suppose that is what, yeah, also, can I say this, which I think is related then to the tipping point idea. The idea mm-hmm. there is that you shouldn't go one way in one direction or too much in the other direction. You should always be balanced so you could go in any direction. One thing that I think is wrong is when clubs talk about this is our playing style. Because why? You've got like 11 intelligent individuals there on the field who can understand all sorts of aspects of playing in different ways. 
and you can substitute in other players which which suit some sort of different style you can actually learn 10 different playing styles and you can change between those playing styles if you've got if you're really working on having good performance so i i don't think that you should be locked into this idea that this is our playing style and as soon as you start talking to like particularly club well certain clubs they think that this really is essential to them that they have this defined playing style but that's a bad idea i think it's a bad idea for barcelona and it's a bad idea for any club to say that we're definitely going to play in this particular particular type of way. I mean, no one's complaining at Liverpool about how they play now. And they were all on about like this pass and move idea. This was always the Liverpool philosophy. This is how we played in the 1980s. And now they just play with like really long balls, hit, a, hit fast attacks, which has nothing to do with how they played in the 1980s. And that's fine because um, it wins. But I think you should be able to train to do all of these different styles of football. I want to move back to the the moral dimension that we've been talking about. Um, I think you've done a really good job of keeping the book apolitical in a sense, but you think well, so. there's a really intrinsically <laughs> political like aspect to all of this. And I think you could have you could have I don't know if it had been me, I would probably have banged on about this a little bit more. But you, you talk about the swinging inequalities that have yawned over what we used to call the the first world in the mid twentieth century. And one of the aspects that became very clear to me in the book was how the more data you can control and the quicker you can control it, the more power you can wield. Um, and this is the sort of idea behind uh, the notion of ten, this this shadowy society that is controlling the world is is that what these people are doing is is actually nothing really out of the ordinary. They're using simple mathematical equations, but they're using wild economies of scale uh, in order to be able to do so. For example, you talk about the high speed financial trading, which which uses that economy of scale and the economy of speed to shave off profits from millions of transactions. And if you do, can do that quickly enough in enough times, then you will end up making profits from it. Um, the same sorts of things are happening in gambling as well. Um, so I'm interested in in how much that reality prompted you to write a book which does look at the more specifically moral dimensions of maths. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have very strong personal opinions about this. I mean, I think it's terrible that we have this inequality. Um, I live in Sweden where there is less inequality, but there is still a high level of inequality. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's a massive problem. It is, it is the biggest problem that we have today. Even though we've got better off um, in general, that we're all richer than we were and we're all healthier than we were 50 years ago across the entire world. Within different countries, there's become this increased inequality. And I, yeah, I, I suppose, I think that I, I, when I write, I have to get a balance there because you don't want to be harking on about this all of the time. But I think it's always, it's always in the background. But for me personally, it's a, it's a really big problem. Um, and again, it comes down to education is one of the key things. If you can get people educated, if you can give people opportunities, and I'm definitely, I'm for, for example, the having some sort of universal salary that everybody should get some amount of money. I think we live in a society where we should definitely, definitely do that. You see inequality everywhere. You see it in like the coronavirus, where it's the poor people who, who, who die from this as well. Uh, it's just permeates everything. The, the problem with all the disillusioned Trump voters, and they all believe in conspiracy theories. And that's why I wanted to lift up a little bit this idea that there is a conspiracy of this 10. And it's always dangerous to start talking about conspiracy theories. But it's true. There is a small group of people who are just raking in the profits over and over again. And there's a vast 
body of people who are just trying to work out what's going on. And it's those people who are upset and are, are voting for Trump in the in the US and are voting for Brexit. They're trying to work out how can it be like this? How can all these like posh middle class people like David go around just having this lovely life and I'm left doing this shitty job or not even being allowed to do the job that I would like to do, you know, that they've all just disappeared. Those people are, they don't like this whole concept of Europe and and so on because of this inequality thing. And I think that's, that for me has been something that I've thought about a lot recently. In my last book, um, Outnumbered, I wrote a lot about how I didn't really believe that, or I, I looked at whether fake news and Cambridge Analytica were responsible for Brexit and Trump and found that they weren't really responsible for it. Now I'm actually addressing what is responsible for these types of these types of political movements and more extremism. And it's inequality. It's inequality in education and it's financial inequality that results from this. I'm interested in that sort of idea of, of education because, um, well, I agree with everything that you've said. Obviously, um, th- there's a sense in which, you know, the people in power will want to keep the power in, in, as much as they can. And that education, I think, necessarily works against retaining that power. So how much do you think that, that a project of education is doomed from the off when, when you know, the, the political reality suits the people who are able to control those narratives? Uh, well, I suppose when I'm talking about in having some sort of minimum uh, universal wage, then that's trying to change that. There's always going to be idiots in power. Um, I mean, I'm all for a total socialist change, you know, of, of, of society. I mean, I think that when I talk about education, what I mean is there's availability to everybody as a basic human right to have a good quality education to have money for resources and food and so on, these should be, and you have a good health service, all of those things should be guaranteed by the state. And there shouldn't be that opportunity for individuals to just become rich and hold all of those resources for themselves. So when I'm talking about education, I'm not just saying a small change in the budget that you have better. During the summer, I was reading This Life by Martin Hegland, and he he has an incredibly interesting idea, and it's that our lives are finite. So when we die, there's nothing. And if you believe that, and he says there's lots of reasons you should believe that, then everything you should do should be about investing things in your life being good. And that actually has a consequence for the economy as a whole. And it says it's got nothing to do with money. It's all to do with our time, how much time we have to do the things we love. I mean, you love making podcasts. I love doing applied mathematics. We should invest our time in doing the things we we love. And people aren't given the opportunity to do those types of things, to invest in doing the types of things that they love, to make the things that they do. And we have to actually rearrange the economy on those principles. It can't be just some sort of small change that I'm talking about that you have a little bit more education for people. It's remaking the economy in a way that allows people to do the things that they love doing. Of course, there's things, there's boring things like washing up and cleaning up that people have to do, and we have to find some way of solving them, but they're becoming so minimal now. And and this is really what, you know, and now I'm just going, I mean, his argument is that this is Marxism. This is exactly what <laughs> Karl Marx said, and that's what should be done. We want to maximise the time doing things we enjoy. I'm in a very luxurious position that I can maximise the, the time doing things I enjoy, writing books about what I'm interested in, but lots of other people can't. 
And we have to be able to make sure that as many people as possible can spend as much time doing the things that they love and enjoy doing. So now, now you see I actually have very much stronger views than are expressed in the book. So maybe I didn't write as genuinely <laughs> about what I think. But it, <laughs> you have to, if you're going to make I'm an looking argument. forward to the Marxist volume, the next book. Yes. <laughs> Karl Marx and football. You end the book by appealing to a form of soft moral intuition. I wondered if you could maybe explain that to, to the listeners. So I wrote a bit that eventually got cut from the book, um, but tried to express this, and it was to do with my mum. So... My mum is, um, she's like both soft and hard, I think. And she's hard in the way that she's totally analytical about the things that occur around her. She an she's a lawyer and she analyzes problems and comes to conclusions. And she doesn't have any sort of time for, what do you, in Swedish it's called flumig or like straight, like just kind of, <laughs> It's got to be like practical and it's got to be numerical and it's got to be exact when she's making an argument. And everyone, all of the other lawyers, she worked in Dunfermline as a, as a small town lawyer. All the other lawyers were absolutely scared shitless of her because she was so <laughs> tough. And uh, she was one of the few, there was only three women working there and they were all scared of these three women. They called them the three <laughs> witches. And um, so she was really hard in that way. Um, and that's something which I am as well. I mean, I'm very analytically tough um, that things should be done correctly. But I'm also what I also got from her is that she's very soft in the sense that she always had time to talk to people. And she worked for Women's Aid, um, helping women who'd been beaten by their husbands and so on. And she had time always to talk to these people and find out things about them. And I think that's what we should think about as applied mathematicians. We should be tough in the sense that we are analytical when we're solving problems, but we should be soft in the sense that we should be forgiving of other people. We should um, help other people. We should think about how we can make society a better place. And that's I didn't write that precisely. And I used the railroad in the, in the book. It's a more abstract thing. I used the railway problem to start thinking about those moral issues. But that idea originally comes from, I actually did a two hour interview with my mum where I asked her about various things of her own life. And that was the, the idea that was behind it. Just one more question then. Do you think the the book has changed you as a person? Do you think you view the world differently now than you did? Or is it simply the result of the way that you felt before writing it? What came first, the model or the, if the book's the model here or the reality, which is your life? Well, talking about it now, it feels like it's changed me. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, does, it does change me, right, the, the process of writing these books. I mean, each one of them, each one of the books I've written over the last few years, I've actually written four books. I wrote a book about collective animal behavior first before I started. I haven't read that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> we could do that one next week. But that one changed me in the fact that, um, yeah, yeah, I think each of them has changed the way I've... Socomatics was the one that had the biggest change on my life because I ended up doing the stuff on football. But I think this probably is the one that has more formed exactly what I want to say so so maybe you have these ideas vaguely like if you think back to what I just said when I rambled on a little bit about Marxism and blah 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 that's just me that, that goes back to what we started at the start about me being a boring and uninteresting person that's just me rambling about something when you have to write things down 
in in a book form you have to be more precise and in that sense it actually clarifies my thinking and makes me more able to think clearly about these problems so yes it's changed me not so fundamentally in what i think but in my ability to to talk clearly about inequalities in the world and so on that that it's definitely it's definitely changed me well david i could have talked to you for another couple of hours but um time moves on we have to you have to get on with our lives right? oh, no, it's very interesting and I, I did think from what i've seen you post on twitter and uh, previous things i thought that you would enjoy this book i mean it's quite an interesting background that you have working in football from theology and philosophy um i don't know how many other people with your background would also be uh, well i mean there's going to be there's, you have a very uncommon background and uh, <laughs> i thought that you would enjoy it so i'm, I'm very i'm very glad you did so one final question how can people get hold of your book and we've talked a lot about uh, morality in this podcast so so they can get it on amazon but how should they get hold of your book <laughs> well they should demand that their local bookstore um stock it i mean it's a really difficult thing isn't it i've talked about all of these these um uh these inequality things and so on and then when i promote my book I have to give it the Amazon link because when they buy it, it will be also liked and increased by the algorithm and more people will buy it. So uh, that's the that's the sad reality. <laughs> but you can... Can you not hack Amazon, Google, YouTube? No? You must have friends who can do that kind of thing. You, you know, know what? There's a certain football book out there where I think that they did that right at the start when their book came out. So um, that people do wow. do that. You can just buy loads of copies of your own book and uh, get it up the ranking ranking charts. But um, no, I, I don't think that's a that's a good idea. Um, but to answer your sorry, the question was like, where can you get your book? It's available at all good local uh, bookshops, and please go down to your local bookshop. Corona restrictions um, accepting, and, and get a copy today. And that book is the ten equations that rule the world and how you can use them too. It's published by Alan Lane, which is an imprint of penguin random um david thank you so much for, for chatting to me um and i look forward to the next book yes <laughs> is that the wrong thing to say <laughs> no it's, it's it's the right thing to say i'm already halfway through it or a third of the oh, way well, through brilliant. It. so uh are we are we allowed a teaser on that one no or? you're not because I, I don't even know how to explain so yeah i mean you're asking about how it, <laughs> how it um how these things shape my my thinking I mean, I don't even know how to explain the next book in <laughs> words. So that's the reason you, you, you don't get any preview of it. One day it will be explained in words. Well, here's fingers crossed for that volume on football and Marxism that I've been looking forward to all this time. <laughs> David, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 